Hi, this is Paul Butler. I'm the Senior Pastor of New Heart Baptist Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. We hope that this podcast will be a great blessing to you and encourage your life. We continue our series of these seven churches and we come to Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 through to 13. The Church of Philadelphia. And let me read to you. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're up to church number, anyone know? What number is it? Six. Okay, and it's a church of? Philadelphia, and we're not talking about the place in America, all right? So stay on track, okay? And I'll get in trouble for that later. But anyway, there are two key words that I want us to pick out of this passage. First one is the word patience, and the second one is doors. Patience. Some of you may be familiar with the phrase, I keep asking God for patience, but I wish you'd hurry up and give it to me. <laughs> I believe that we have in our society a lack of patience, and it's increasing. How do I know that? Because there's so much more road rage going on. In fact, last yesterday I was talking with a gentleman who drives um, vans and trucks for a living and do, does deliveries, and he says to me that he was driving along and he had this car that was next to him and just doing this back and forth, back and forth, and he finally looked at the driver and it was this dear old lady and he was like, oh, yeah, and next thing she raised her finger at him. <laughs> it's not about younger generation, it's all generations. There's this lack of actual tolerance and this lack of patience. So what were the two words? Patience and doors. Let me tell you about a man who was going on a blind date. He was very shy. And so his friend gave him the following advice in case he needed to suddenly get out of the date. He said, if you don't like the way she looks, this is what I do. I go to the girl's front door to pick her up. And when she opens the door, you know, I check her out. If I like what I see, then great, I'm all set. But if she's ugly, fake an asthma attack. You know, hold your throat like you're having trouble breathing, go, ah! And when she asks what's wrong, just say, it's my asthma. So we have to call off the date just like that, no problem. Well, that sounded like good sense to this man. And so he said, yep, I'll do it. He went to pick up the blind date, knocked on the door, and to see his surprise, she was very attractive. The man stood there, not knowing exactly what to say, and she suddenly put a hand to her throat and went, ah! <laughs> 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 
patience and doors. Philadelphia was known as the doorway to the east. It, was, it provided a trade route to the Orient and the riches of the Orient. It was this prosperous agricultural region that flourished because of the rich volcanic soil that surrounded the region. It was perfect for the growing of grapevines. And that was their main industry. They had all these grapevines that surrounded the, the city. And for them, they prospered from it. The problem was that that region was also prone to earthquakes. So in AD 17, this city was decimated by an earthquake. Since then, it had been rebuilt. So here we are, you know, a number of years later, in 92, um, three years before this, in 90, before this letter was written, in 92 AD, they had an emperor, and the emperor's name was Domitian. And Domitian, he at that time, he faced a dilemma. There was two problems going on in particular. One, they had an overproduction of wine. The second one was they underproduction or a lack of grain and so for Domitian who was the emperor he immediately went hang on we need to change things because we need more production of grain and as a result of that he issued a decree that half of the vineyards in that whole vicinity were immediately to be plowed up destroyed to instead plant grain now for the people in Philadelphia they were absolutely it was like having their heart just ripped out from them why? Because their livelihood was about this one industry. And instead, they've got their emperor, who they had put their trust in, who they respected as their leader, was suddenly the one who was betraying them and saying, no, what you're doing, you've got to now wipe it out, and instead you've got to actually try and grow grain. For the people of Philadelphia, they also saw this as an attack on their spiritual worship because those who followed the Greek gods in Philadelphia, the Greek god was the god of wine. So in all of what they were honouring and offering to, in their Greek god was that which was to, all related to wine, nothing related to grain. And now their, their leader, their emperor, was the one who was telling them, no, no, you've got to wipe all that out and you've got to start all over again. It was an act of betrayal. It was an act of disrespect to them as a city and it's to that that Jesus then writes to this city and he says to them these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open the words of him who is holy and true Jesus he's holy he is without sin he died on the cross he took away our sin he's not now covered in our sin anymore he's holy but he says he's true it is this contrast against their emperor who has actually, people go, well, you've betrayed us. And Jesus is going, no, no, I'm true. I'm going to be true to my word and what I have promised, I am going to keep. I'm not going to change it just to suit myself. It's this continual contrast that we see between one side and the other. And Jesus, right at the start, brings that as a focus. He says that he is the one who's holy and true. And because he is holy and true, he can be trusted with what's called the key of David. This phrase, the key of David, appears back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22, and it's a prophetic word back in, in that chapter. And it was actually a literal key, and it was tied to a piece of cord, and it, the cord would be hung over the shoulder of a particular individual. That individual was the person who was the second highest 
under the king. Why? Because that key, it was... Um, it, it unlocked the house of David, which contained all the treasures of the kings of Judah. As well as that, the person who carried that key, as I said, was second in the land. They were the one who controlled, who had access to the king and who didn't. So the one with that key, they controlled things. And yet Jesus is saying, he is the one who holds that key of David. In other words, Jesus was assuring those Christians in Philadelphia, I am the one who holds the key and grants access to to the presence of my father and i'm the one who has that door open for you and because jesus is a key it is only through him alone that we have access to god's presence because jesus is true he also therefore says that he knows the truth about them nothing was hidden in fact this letter to the to the church in philadelphia was quite unique when i read it before one thing did you notice one thing? There was no rebuke, there was no criticism, there was no, but you have this that you have to fix up. None. It is the one letter out of all of them that is, out of all the seven letters, that is completely filled with praise. You also have the church in Smyrna. That one was all praise. However, they were given one charge of encouragement that they were to remain faithful even unto death. This one here for Philadelphia is different because the whole thing is just praise, praise, praise. Well done, well done, well done. Philadelphia as a church wasn't large in number, wasn't powerful, wasn't influential, but in Jesus' eyes it was significant. And what's that tell us? That when Jesus looks at something in terms of the spiritual growth, in terms of the spiritual wealth or heart of it he doesn't look at it based on buildings he doesn't look at it based on numbers of attendance he doesn't look at programs ministries wealth growth what jesus looks at in terms of spiritual health and vitality is he looks at the individual at the heart and he goes where is your heart and that's why jesus says to them i know your deeds See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus identifies in them four characteristics. The first one, he knew their deeds. He knew that they had given themselves completely to Jesus in serving Jesus. And they, they said, Jesus is Lord. And that their deeds, what, any deeds that they were doing, it flowed out of that love for Jesus rather than deeds of obligation. And when he says, I know your deeds, he was letting them know, and nothing's being hidden from me. I see everything that's going on. That's the first one. The second characteristic he said is, I know that you have little strength. That word strength, it specifically relates to things on a political or physical level. It is nothing related to a spiritual level. And so when he's saying to them, I know that you have little strength, I know you have little strength physically, or I know you have little strength in a political standpoint. But despite having little strength, he says that there is, they have strength. Despite being weak, they have strength. Why? The very words he gave to the Apostle Paul when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, that Paul was then able to proclaim, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my, about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus was emphasizing the fact that although you are weak, this is 
my strength will be able to shine out from you and my strength will be able to be poured into you. You don't have to continue to try and do it all on your own. I'm going to continue to pour it into you. They weren't on their own. Jesus was also affirming them for standing firm and for not denying Christ's name despite their limited strength. Their strength that was not in themselves but rather it was in Jesus. The third characteristic Jesus points out is he knew that they had kept his word. That word kept, it means to take care of, to observe. It is a bit like when you see a little young, you know, a little puppy, all right, and the child just wants to hold it and just and strokes it and cares for it and, you know, doesn't want to let it out of sight. It's that same understanding of that they have just kept and treasured it and not wanted to see any harm come to it. That they have held and kept God's word and treasured it in their hearts, but also made it first and foremost in the life of the church and all that they were doing. That they kept it in a high place and, and honoured it, but also so that what the Bible said in laying out the plans of God, that they stayed true to those plans and they did not deviate to the right or left, but continued steadfast on following Jesus. The fourth characteristic, he knew that they had not denied his name. We've mentioned in previous weeks of other churches where Jesus actually rebukes and challenges different ones because they had actually been a bit quiet and you know, people say that oh, you're a Christian and they've been, they'd almost been ashamed to say that they were a Christian. And for others, when they were challenged by, you need to say Caesar is Lord, they were saying Caesar is Lord and at the same time Jesus is Lord and Jesus said, you can't do both. You only have one Lord. Who is it? And Jesus was affirming the church here in Philadelphia because they weren't ashamed to be known as Christians, as followers of Christ. And they were not ashamed to say, no, we're not going to say Caesar is Lord because for us only Jesus is Lord. And he says, that's why he says, you have not denied my name. But in the midst of that, he also recognises that they still faced opposition. Life wasn't easy for them. In fact, there were three areas of opposition. Jesus says, from people who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. A number of weeks ago, we looked at the church of Smyrna. Smyrna also has that same reference of people who are of the synagogue of Satan. Who were they? These are people who were Jews that when they met together, they used to call it the assembly of the Lord and Jesus instead rebuked them and said, it's not the assembly of the Lord, rather this is a synagogue of Satan because you are not fulfilling what God is actually asking you to do. Instead, you're doing what pleases you yourselves and you're not walking according to what God had given you as commands. Jesus uses that same reference here of the synagogue of Satan because they opposed the work of Christians and persecuted them. And in fact, Jesus he had, also, had warned and said in John chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's been, he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus also calls them liars. Not a nice term. Why? Because they were not who they said they were. There was this falsehood in their lives where they were saying they were Jews, but actually they were not living it and practicing it. In actual fact, their lifestyle was more assimilated with the works of the devil who comes to steal, kill and destroy. These Jews, they claimed that God had entrusted them with the key of David, which meant that they were the ones who had the power to either include or exclude people from God's kingdom. And they were actually 
excluding these Christians and saying, no, you have no part of God's kingdom because you have gone off on some other tangent with this other Jesus Christ. And so for these Jews, they were saying, we've got the key of David and we're excluding you. But by rejecting the Christians in Philadelphia, the Jews were in actual fact opposing God. So they faced opposition from the Jews. They faced opposition from the Romans. The Romans who said, you shall say Caesar is Lord. And these Christians, as I've already said, they refused to say Caesar is Lord. Instead, they held to Jesus is Lord. As a result of it, some were executed, some were persecuted significantly, but they remained faithful. The third area Jesus points out, the ultimate source of persecution and suffering, it comes from the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But in identifying this opposition that they were facing, Jesus was also identifying the fact that he had already overcome each one of them. And if Jesus has overcome them, then he was saying to the church, guess what, I've overcome them, therefore you have overcome them. One, we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus was saying, you already have the victory. Why? Because I have already got the victory. The problem is we actually think we're fighting a level on this ground and we need to realize that we're actually in highest places and we've got the upper ground advantage. Problem is too many Christians are living a defeated life because they're focusing on the problem rather than focusing on Jesus. Should be a big amen on that one, right? But Jesus reassures this church in Philadelphia that those who are opposing... He will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. A time is coming when the truth will be revealed, when everything will be seen for what it is. And these people, these opponents, they're going to be humbled before Jesus. A day when they would actually learn the truth that they've actually been working and opposing God in their actions. And Jesus also promises these Philadelphia Christians, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. If you forget everything else and you ever are facing struggles, come to this verse. Why? It has the phrase, keep you from. That phrase is used one other time throughout the New Testament. Anyone know when? When Jesus was there praying for us. And he prayed in John chapter 17, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect, that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't ask the Father to remove the disciples from the world because he wants the church in the world as a testimony of his saving grace. If the believers were, if we're removed or if we're isolated, then it would hinder our witness. Instead, Jesus asked the Father to guard and watch over his followers through these attacks. That phrase, so when he says to keep, the actual literal interpretation is guard and watch over. So the next time you're going through a really difficult time and you're going, why is this going on? Go back to Jesus' prayer and say, hang on, Jesus, you prayed to the Father and Father, Jesus prayed on my behalf that you would guard and watch over me. I'm now claiming that promise. 
that you would guard and watch over. Picture that, all right? Guard, it's a surrounding, and watch over. It's a promise over each one of us. And it is a beautiful promise of blessing, even though in the midst of it we face suffering, we face trials, we face difficulties, we face heartaches, we face all sorts of things. But what? God's grace is sufficient for us. Why? Because we shouldn't be surprised when trials and tribulations come, because Scripture says through the testing of our faith we develop perseverance. Do you know one thing that stands out glaringly obvious in all of this for me is that in all of what we've read There is not once where these Christians in Philadelphia ever we hear of them or read of them complaining or blaming God during these times of testing. Instead, they endured patiently. And as a result, Jesus reminds them of their reward. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. In other words, despite the opposition, despite being physically weak, despite not having any political strength, you've endured patiently. Why? Because they weren't looking at the circumstances, they were looking to Jesus. And Jesus encourages them to hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What was it they had? They had Jesus. And he had promised that they would receive a crown. Do you know that crown? It's not a crown about salvation. The actual understanding of that crown, and it's not one at the crown that the queen wears, you know, one of those crowns, no. The actual understanding of the crown is one of a wreath. Why was it a wreath? Because back then they had their games that they did and the person who came first in their athletics or whatever else was awarded a wreath. Why? Because they had overcome all the others in order to take the victory. Therefore, they were awarded this wreath. Jesus is speaking of the same for us, that that we overcome and we would be awarded this wreath this crown, and that crown specifically relates to our service for Jesus. Jesus then promises, Him who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on him my new name. Notice how many times the word my and my God are mentioned. What's it communicate? It's personal, it's relational, it's intimacy. And Jesus makes three promises for the one who overcomes. Firstly, that they will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Interesting to note earlier, Jesus had said that they were weak, but now he says that they will be a pillar. Pillars were synonymous with strength, but also permanence and pillars back then in philadelphia were scattered right throughout the city often in many of the pagan temples but why was it significant why did jesus use this reference because back then any citizen of philadelphia who did something of serving the city something of notability something that they then wanted to honor that person they would then inscribe that person's name on a pillar throughout the city so that everyone could see it and Jesus is going, hey, do you know what? You might have that, but those, those pillars, they're of earthly nature. They're going to crumble. They're going to fall, maybe even in the next earthquake. But the pillar that I'm going to write your name on is in my heavenly kingdom, my heavenly kingdom, where it will never, ever crumble or fall. It's there for all eternity. That's where your name will be. 
It's a promise for all the believers who overcome that their names will be written there and never ever erased. The second promise he gave is that they'll have God's name on them and their address will be the new Jerusalem. You know, many of our items of clothes have that tag on the back of them. I had a friend of mine years ago, he used to uh, walk up to an attractive girl and he'd grab the back of their collar and he'd look at their tag and they'd be like, what are you doing? And he'd step back and he'd look at them and go, oh, I was sure you were made in heaven. <laughs> oh, yeah, we won't go there, all right? Yeah, okay. Problem is, that's what Jesus is talking about that he's pleased to be associated with the Christians in Philadelphia and that his name was going to be written on them. But when Jesus looked at them, yep, my name's on you. Third promise, that they will be given a new name. We've learned in previous weeks the importance of names and the name would actually be assimilated with the person's character. Jesus, he was given the name Jesus. Why? Because he would save people from their sins for the Christians in Philadelphia, that they would be given a new name that was symbolic of their character. What was their character? Their patient endurance. I said at the start of this message that this passage has two key words. What were those words? Patience and doors. Jesus affirms the believers for their patience in the midst of their struggles and hardships. Because of their patience, Jesus would open the door. Too many Christians today are there, I have to tell you, they're trying to play God. They get upset or blame God when things don't go their way. But what's the key? Jesus, the key is patience and allow Jesus to be able to open that door. Too many people have got blood pouring down their heads. Why? Because they keep trying to bang and open that door and not let Jesus open it. Instead, he says, what do you need? Patient endurance. Throughout these seven letters, Jesus continually points out this contrast between what is true and what is counterfeit. And each of these messages begins with this fresh revelation of who is Jesus. I believe what the church needs today is that continued fresh revelation of who is Jesus. Let's get, not, let's get out of that mundane, let's get out of being just stuck in that routine and that oh, going through the emotions. No, no, we need a fresh revelation of Jesus because that's what's going to stir us, that's what's going to actually bring life and it's others are going to go, I want what you've got because it is life-giving. We're going to see the breakthroughs today. If we're going to see us fulfilling Jesus' last command as our first priority, it starts with us enduring patiently and letting Jesus open that door. I believe this morning, for some of us, that's a very key, the word that God wants us to know. But his word to you is, stop banging your head on that door. Stop it. It's not helping me. I want you to endure patiently. I'm going to open that door. But you don't know the other work I'm also doing before I can open that door. So just endure patiently right now. For some of you, it's about healing. For some of you, it's about new jobs or new opportunities. For others of you, it's about finances. It's multiple things. For some of you, it's healing. And Jesus wants to do that. But patient endurance and let him open that door for some this morning i believe that god's actually calling us firstly to repent of where we've tried to push that door open ourselves and he says no i'm going to do it but i need you to surrender to me stop trying in your own strength 
So I'm going to give us just a few moments just to be silent before the Lord. Then I'm going to pray. And then our team's going to come up and we're going to close the service with a song. We're singing this song. Why? Because our God is good. Our God is faithful. We declared that earlier in that service, the goodness of God. We're giving thanks, Harriet and Sue. We're giving thanks to God for you and God's miracle and continued miracles and work. We're giving thanks to God because we're saying, God, do it again. So just take a moment just to be silent before the Lord. Just let the Holy, Holy Spirit speak to you.